Here we go. We're live. We're live. Hello. Hello. <laughs> that was a little shot. Of you, would you jam, it's like you jammed your gun. Oh, like, Foley, right? Welcome all. It is Monday night, generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter. And there's always something brewing every time we go live, isn't there? Yes, there is. Yeah. And so now, ironically, we are going to talk about Tim Pool this evening, not for the reason that apparently is being floated in the news right now, which is basically to blame. Tim Pool apparently is being blamed for the Texas shooter. Like that's, the, I, I tell you, you know, at some point, I one of the one of the downsides that I often say about politics, like when you're really in it, you when they talk about the swamp, well, one of the elements of the swamp is the clickbaity stuff that goes on constantly. As we sit here talking about it. So it turns out that the shooter, who was, who was in a Mexican gang but also was a neo-Nazi, had the tattoos, had everything, you know, all the nine yards. But a couple of members of the elite liberal media felt the need to point out that he likes to watch Tim Pool. Like, that's something – I when you do something like that, I really don't understand, like, what you think you're going to get out of that. Like, what they're what, – what Well, we know what they're doing. It's just clickbaity. It is. It's bad taste. Let's put it that way. There's no point. No. Because the implication is somehow there's a link between the shooting and Tim Pool. That's what they're trying to do. You know where there's a link between shootings? There's a link between shootings and economic anxiety and issues that exist on a day-to-day basis. And I would say men, because I'm not going to stop pointing that out. Well, let's just blame men because that's easier. No, but every single one of these mass shootings has been done by a man. I don't think that it's a coincidence. Well, perhaps if we did a better job of making sure that men had better economic opportunity, oh, I'm that sure. would actually help a lot. If they had better health care, that would be a much better opportunity. If they had educational opportunities without going into debt forever, I think that would help. It would I help. think you'd be much less likely to pick up a gun. Just I, a thought. I think you would. But I think women have those same problems too. There is a belief that one of the ways that this can be done is by using alternative money sources such as cryptocurrency. Now, for the layperson that's out there, most people really do not understand what crypto is, how it works, what blockchain is, how the actual currency is determined in terms of value. So there is a lot to learn this evening. So we are going to have two amazing guests, one who happens to be the Bitcoin progressive, as well as the gentleman who is a very good friend who made this conversation possible in the first place. So first and foremost, we are going to bring in our, who has been an amazing supporter of progressive politics, even though he has every reason not to be. So without further ado, Craig Shapiro, for the first time and not the last time, welcome to Generational Change. Your audio is on mute. Such a loser I am. Sorry. Hello, Jen and Peter. How are you? How are you? Hey. What's happening? Go. What's going on? Nine o'clock on a Monday. Uh, Nick's heat, but you know, I'm here with you guys. So I have no doubt that you're watching it in the background, and that's okay because I would be doing the same thing. And I'm sitting here looking at him, thinking it's Monday night of school night. He has four children. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. No, I know. But like, my first thought goes to that. But no, he's worried about the game. I just think you know, like you know, it's nice that you got your priorities all there, Greg. Yes. Well, (laughs) he was fortunate enough to go to the game on Saturday, and the Heat are doing well. So we'll see if it continues. But without. Diving into sports, because Jen will destroy me if I do. Please don't. We are very pleased to bring on a gentleman who 
definitely knows a thing or two about Bitcoin from a progressive perspective. Very often we hear from the libertarian perspective where generally it is much more commonplace. But perhaps there is a place in the progressive circles for Bitcoin, much as we have discussed the need for modern monetary theory and universal basic income. Bitcoin is also something worth talking about. Jason Meyer, welcome to Generational Change. Thank you for having me. So excited to be here. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. And quickly, Mario, no, Craig is not related to Ben Shapiro. Man, At least that, not is, that, that, that is a, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, uh, you're not, right, Craig? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not. Just, I am not. Okay. It, it, okay. It, it, yes, correct. Okay. Just easy, easy enough. <laughs> so for most, I mean, obviously the logical place to start here is the fact that most people do not understand. They may think that they understand what Bitcoin is. Quite frankly, you could probably even speak to this extensively about how probably most people that own Bitcoin don't know what the hell it is, don't know what it does, and how it actually is valued against the US dollar, uh, how that's determined. So why don't we take it from the top, just the basics of what Cryptocurrency actually is. Can someone tell me the difference between Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? Let's let, Bit, just start with like Bitcoin whatever is this is for crypto. dummies. Okay, Bitcoin fine. is a form of cryptocurrency. All right. Okay. Can, well, can I can I hop in there? Are you Please. Is that a question to me. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think that uh, first of all, uh, I'll, I'll just speak to Bitcoin first, and then I'll answer Jen's question too. Uh, so Bitcoin is essentially a decentralized. Um, censorship resistant way to transfer value on the internet uh, from one pure user to the other without any trusted uh, third parties or intermediaries. Um, it's an absolutely scarce monetary technology. Um, and uh, I think it has the properties that I describe in my book that are, are actually good for progressive uh, values and for progressive um, uh, you know, goals. So um, all of the things I just mentioned that it's decentralized and um, it's permissionless and it's censorship resistant and there's no third trusted third parties are all very important to sort of the overall picture. Um, Bitcoin was the first example of a cryptocurrency that used a blockchain. Um, and since then, obviously, as we know, many, many more have, have spawned. Um, it is critical to understand that there is no other cryptocurrency that has both a network effect and the decentralization and the security that Bitcoin has, um, which makes it essentially on, on any practical level impossible to attack or impossible to censor, impossible to shut down. Um, and that is one of the major things that separates it from every other cryptocurrency that's out there. Um, so for, from my perspective um, and for many people who um, have learned a lot about Bitcoin like me, they, uh, they're very quick to distinguish between the two, right? Like Bitcoin, not crypto. There's a lot of, um, I mean, I'm not saying that there's no use cases for other cryptocurrencies or other blockchains, but if you want a, a form of decentralized money uh, that people can use for, for like freedom money and uh, aren't sort of subject to uh, authoritarian dictatorships, uh, Bitcoin is really the only way to go. So um, I think that it is critically important, uh, among many other things that I would love to say, is that um, Bitcoin is uh, the premier, the first, the very in initial cryptocurrency, but it is different from all of the others in very important ways. So it's basically, it's the functioning version of cryptocurrency that exists right now. I, well, yeah, I mean, I, there, there's it's plenty of people now. who would disagree, but I, I think that's that's exactly how I would view it, yeah. Okay. So if the average person doesn't really understand this and is going to say, well, why 
when I use crypto and ha- or in this case Bitcoin, how, how do I trust it? How do I know that mm-hmm. this isn't you know something similar to you know Doggy Coin with what Elon Musk was doing? You know, there's yeah. a lot of pump and dump schemes, Craig, as you know, when it comes to stock trading. So where exactly does this fall in terms of market manipulation? Uh, you know, understanding the value of it. Like, how does one determine that one Bitcoin is worth, you know, $40,000? What, where, what is that? Is that backed against anything? Um, so, I don't know, Craig, if you want, ever want to hop in too, I don't want to take yeah, no, get Jason, you go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Um, so, the, the, the US dollar exchange rate for Bitcoin is essentially determined on a supply demand basis, right? You have people who want to sell their Bitcoin for dollars and people who would like to buy it. Um, and that's essentially if there's more people who want to sell it, then the price goes down. And if there's more people who want to buy it, the price can go up. Um, the market cap of Bitcoin makes it more difficult than anything, any of the other cryptocurrencies to market manipulate, but it's essentially a supply and demand issue. Um, Bitcoin is backed by the computational energy that goes into it. It's backed by the tens of thousands of um, uh, distributed nodes that validate the monetary system um, and protect it. Um, it's not, it is the thing that does the backing. It is not backed by anything because it is the thing that you have to work for to get. So it's a monetary technology similar to gold in the sense that you need to work to dig gold out of the ground, uh, refine it, and then bring it to market. Um, and for many years, obviously, we all know that you know dollars used to be backed by gold. Um, and the reason for that is because gold is the real monetary value, that base layer. And now uh, Bitcoin gives people an opportunity to have that base layer, that, um, that scarce and hard money asset uh, through a computer network. And so when you ask, if it, is it backed by anything? Uh, it's backed by a lot more uh, than dollars uh, are. And certainly uh, it's, it's the thing that does the backing. It's not backed by anything. It is, it is the thing that backs. Greg, hop in there. No, I, I think um, one, one of the things that folks need to realize in Jason made this point last is, is what is the U.S. dollar backed by? Um, you know, we in uh, in 1971, Nixon removed gold as the backing for the U.S. dollar, and so we've now lived in a in a system for the last 50 or so years where the dollar's value really has not been backed by anything specifically. Um, some people would argue, and and maybe so, that it's backed by our air force carriers, it's backed by our military, it's backed by the government's ability to to tax uh, and pay for its expenses, but it is not backed by any hard uh, asset um, that you know it, it, folks would think it's backed by. So similar to Bitcoin, it, it's it, 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 or different than Bitcoin, which is backed by this computational power um, and the ability to to mine and create them. And I think the, the second important point. It, that we need to think about is the supply of Bitcoin and how that that comes about. Um, the supply of Bitcoin is algorithmically determined uh, already. So there is no ability to create more Bitcoin than has been predetermined uh, you know, by the network already. So every day, 900 Bitcoins are created. Um, and every four years, we have that number of Bitcoin that is created daily. And so there is no ability to change the supply growth algorithm for the currency, which is very different than how we think about dollars, which is that the government 
can come in at any day and create money um, and as much money as it wants to do whatever it wants. And so um, <clears throat> there is an environment that we live in now where the dollar's hegemony, its role as the world's uh, currency, uh, reserve currency, can and should start to come under under pressure as foreigners and everybody starts to worry about our debt load here in America, the government's printing abilities and what we've done with that money. And so Bitcoin provides us with a potential off-ramp um, and an ability to possibly create a new system where money is backed by this computational power. There is no ability for any entity to create new Bitcoin outside of what is already computationally approved. And society can, can feel confident that when it in puts its money uh, or puts its, its value in this, in this asset, that it won't be debased over time by some entity that deflates it by creating more supply. So that is, I think, uh, the you know a powerful, if not the most powerful part of uh, you know the story behind Bitcoin. Now we have a great uh, supporter in the chat, Jr. Junior, who knows this stuff pretty well. I believe he's a big supporter of modern monetary theory. Our friend Steve Grumbine will be on on Friday. Go figure. Uh, so one of the questions, of course, that comes up is when currency is digital as compared to physical, governments are more readily able to seize it from sovereign citizens. So what is the protection? Because I've heard of many circumstances where somebody has some form of cryptocurrency, even Bitcoin, where they have a password and if they can't remember it and they can't access it and then they lose their Bitcoins. I mean, I've, I'm sure that those are extenuating circumstances, probably extremely rare. But nevertheless, there is this fear of putting something that isn't a hard asset. You know, when someone says, I have a Bitcoin, it's like, OK, that's great, but I, I can't touch that. It, it can, you know, it's it's kept online. It's somewhere in the you know, the cloud, whatever you want to call it. So <clears throat> how does one actually protect themselves when something like this happens? Because we've seen what has happened on Capitol Hill. I mean, obviously, Elizabeth Warren comes to mind, who has been fighting very hard against cryptocurrency and believes that it should not exist. So what do you guys say to, you know, somebody like Jamar who is concerned? Why did she say that? No, I'm just, I don't know what her beef is with that. So I can, I, th there's a lot of different questions there. Um, so yeah. I'll say um, the the idea that the, the the money isn't real because you can't touch it. Most of the dollars that you've had over the last 20 years that you've spent and saved and invested, you've never touched, right? They're just numbers on a screen. And that's the reality of it, right? Um, Bitcoin is different in the sense that um, if you do really a, a mild amount of education about uh, how to secure your Bitcoin and protect it, uh, it can't be seized uh, by the government. It can't be taken against your will. It can't be stolen. Um, if you do really a, a small modicum of um, preparation and sort of learning about how it works, um, that's beyond the scope of the discussion now, but that's not a concern. Uh, certainly the government is able to, to take even hard monetary assets, right? In the thirties, the government took everybody's gold um, and gave them paper dollars for it. Um, and then devalued those dollars against the gold um, six months after. So it's not as if the, that having something you can touch protects it uh, from being taken. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite, right? The fact that gold is slow and heavy and hard to transport means that it was easier for uh, large banks and governments to centralize gold um, and give everybody paper, uh, which doesn't uh, really hold any value once the peg to that hard monetary as asset gets broken. Um, so I think that's important that, uh, you know, Bitcoin 
is uh, perfectly reasonable as a monetary technology. It checks all of the boxes about what makes a good money and what makes something valuable. You know, it's scarce, it's easy to transport, it's divisible. Um, and, you know, all of those things are true about Bitcoin, just like they are true and probably in, in most of those categories of what makes good money, Bitcoin is better than dollars or, um, or even gold because it's more transportable and all of that. Uh, I'll, I'll save you. I can talk all about Elizabeth Warren's stance on crypto. I, I, I'll say really quickly that Elizabeth Warren and I agree almost completely because uh, I don't see that crypto cryptocurrencies really have much value except for Bitcoin. So I think that she and I would agree on almost all of them um, and that she's a little bit misguided about the value and the potential that Bitcoin has to really advance some of her uh, progressive goals. Um, Yep. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, that's that's interesting because that's what my my main question is about all this is let's say I, I have a Bitcoin. I don't even yeah. whatever. Let's say I have I, like to me, I'm picturing like, you know, in uh, Mario with the jumping up and getting the coin. <laughs> so, like, let's let's say I have one of those. Yep. What do I do with that? And 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 what what can I do with that? What's the point of that? And like, wh why do I want that? So uh, I'll, I'll just speak really quickly to that, and then I'll let Craig jump in if he wants. Um, I think that the the key here is that you have now a, a, a digital token that can be transferred to anybody in the world um, almost instantly for zero fee that cannot be confiscated, seized, frozen, or stolen. So if you want to do something like donate to a, you know a group working against an authoritarian dictatorship in some other country, like you can send that money directly from one person to another without fear of that government seizing it, taking control of it. Um, siphoning off some of it. Um, and all of that is, you know, facilitates really important things that are happening all around the world. The Human Rights Foundation right now accepts Bitcoin donations for that exact reason, because dollars sent over the traditional legacy financial system gets uh, frozen, siphoned, stolen all the time. Um, you can uh, you know, pay for goods and services for willing, people who are willing to accept Bitcoin, and there's a growing number all the time. But in particular, um, it's it's very good for, um, you know, what they say is you don't really tell an American why they need Bitcoin, because most Americans just view it as a an, an investment instrument to get more dollars. Um, that's not how I view it at all, right? This is monetary technology that allows people to be more secure in the value that they're they're putting their labor into and they're storing their wealth and their their value um, and I will never trade my Bitcoin for dollars I'm just going to use it um, and as a store of value and then as a medium of exchange uh, as it's appropriate how much is a Bitcoin right now what is it what would a Bitcoin cost me yeah, well, a Bitcoin is a Bitcoin. Now, if you want to talk about like the U.S. dollar comparison. Yeah, well, how would I get one? All right. Nobody's going to gift me one. So it's going to cost me some amount of money to get one. Well, you can right. accept you can accept donations. You know, you could accept these uh, exactly. Bitcoin donations instead of just the, the, the dollar donations. So you could get them that way. But what's yeah, so you, can, you have to have to buy them or you earn them. Now, if you wanted to just buy Bitcoin, uh, you can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. So you can buy anywhere from 50 cents, a quarter's worth of Bitcoin uh, up to a whole Bitcoin or even more. A Bitcoin is about $28,000. I don't check every day because it really doesn't bother me. Uh, but what it does, it's a programmable money. So if somebody, I don't know, has a live streaming YouTube channel, like you can accept a streaming amount of money from the people who are, are watching your show in a value for value basis. If you provide value for your uh, listeners and the people who watch your show, they can 
decide that they want to stream you maybe half a cent every minute. Um, and that's possible with Bitcoin in a way that's not possible with any fiat money that exists on the planet right now. That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, all right. So why are the other why are the other forms of crypto considered, you know, useless or, you know, even scam artists like, if you will? Craig, I, I can I can answer. I, I'll talk about this all night, so I'll, I'll stop myself. Yeah, no, go, yeah, no, go on. I, I was just I, I was just going to say it's it's really about, and Jason's going to correct me, but um, the degree of centralization of control of, over the the supply of the crypto and whether or not uh, sponsors of a cryptocurrency how they distribute that crypto over over time and and based on what program. Whereas Bitcoin is fully decentralized. Um, it, it's it's already been predetermined. It's been distributed. Nobody controls the supply algorithm. No one can make any changes to the program. Um, the last Bitcoin, uh, 21 millionth coin, will be mined in the year 2140. And that's, that's what we have. Something like Ethereum or, or Solana or some of these other cryptocurrencies have a group of sponsors that control the technology um, that are able to change the program kind of when they they desire. Um, and there's different degrees of, and rules regarding, you know, their ability to do so. But you, you, you give up the decentralized component of yeah. the crypto when, you know, when you move away from Bitcoin. Um, and so these, these non-Bitcoin cryptos are much more centralized in that regard, and they're much more... Uh, able to be doctored for by a group of insiders who are seeking to you know enrich themselves so that is why there is a, a lot more uh, in the way of scams and 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 issues uh, with some of these cryptocurrencies that Elizabeth Warren is rightfully upset about um, you know from a consumer protection point of view and, and 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 how folks think about investing money they're in these quick you know get rich quick schemes where insiders are dumping coins to them and and playing you know, Ponzi economics and trying to sell out to the next person who sells to the next person. And there's, you know, very limited use case for these, most of these cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin is is, is a completely different, um, you know, object in that regard. I'll, ju I'll, I'll just add that um, the one of the most important facets about the history of Bitcoin is essentially has an immaculate conception. Uh, there is no president, no CEO, nobody in charge of it. It is a distributed and completely decentralized network. So there is no subpoena from the government that can come and say, all right, we need you to shut this down. We don't like it anymore. It, that is not possible. You cannot stop it. Uh, it is a living, breathing thing out there. Um, and so like, this is important because if you, if you really want to throw all of your chips behind another cryptocurrency like Ethereum, there's an a mailing address and a person who's in charge of it. And at some point, the government's going to say, you know what, I don't like people messing around with this money game. We've had a monopoly on that for the last couple hundred years. Um, and we're going to shut you down. Like, well, that's possible with the other cryptocurrencies. Um, the banks are going to fight it because it's a really threat to their business model completely. So like this big bank should be scared. Uh, places like Western Union should be scared. And they are. Uh, you can hear them fighting against us all the time. Well, uh, Bitcoin is the only one of these that can't be stopped and it can't be shut down. Um, so that's, I mean, that's the critical difference between Bitcoin and some of these other cryptocurrencies. Okay. Yeah, I, you know. Unless. See, and now here, here is something that plagues me because I actually believe that at some point we're running out of power. 
and that we're going to go back to sort of like a Mad Max situation and that the whole concept of power is going to go away. So mm-hmm. I kind of get what this person is saying. We had the authors on of a book called Bright Green Lies. And mm-hmm. the reality is our industrialization cannot ma- maintain itself. It just can't. It will come to an end. And when that happens, then what? So, um, yeah, if if uh, if the Internet doesn't exist and we don't have electricity. Yeah. Um, Right. Then, you know, then we're trading ammo for seeds. Right. Like it doesn't really matter at that point. Uh, what yeah. dollars don't mean anything at that point either. So it's not like we're we're arguing. I think that it's safe to say that for the next 10,000 years, Bitcoin's monetary policy and the technology will exist as long as there's human beings, computers and electricity. Um, if any one of those things doesn't exist anymore, then it doesn't really matter what money we're using. So it's not I mean, I don't agree with your stance that like, you know, power won't exist. I do think that we are innovative and we need to be careful about the way we use power and the way we generate power so that we don't harm the planet more than we need to or we don't harm the planet at all. Um, Bitcoin offers some really interesting ways to do that, actually. Um, I don't think we're going to run out of power. I don't think the human beings uh, ingenuity to have um, the civilization that we've developed is going to go away. Now, if I'm wrong then that means that like, it doesn't matter what money we're using. So <laughs> I think that, you know, I, yeah. I mean, we can talk about that, but that's not, you know, it's yeah. not a concern for me is thinking the internet will go away because if that happens, then your dollars go away too. Yeah, no, it's a good point. This is why I want to get into like a small commune and have chickens and have like a garden and do my own thing. This you is sound, You sound like a Bitcoiner. I, I'm just, I don't, I don't, I want to get to where I'm a net neutral. Like my goal is to be net neutral with the, with the earth mm-hmm. at, at some point in my life. So, yeah. That's a great goal. <laughs> the biggest concern on the political left, of course, is the environment. Mm-hmm. When it comes to this issue of crypto mining, um, how does one deal with that? Um, you know, I say all the time, you know, I get taught, I, I, and I am with you on this, Jason. I get tired of people saying, you know, this endless, uh, you know, babbling back and forth about how, well, we have to stop mining for cobalt and lithium. I'm like, yeah, I get that. And that's why eventually solar panels will be powered without lithium and cobalt. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, what exactly is it going to take to not have a carbon footprint regarding crypto mining? Because right now it's not good. So wait, you're telling me that that a Bitcoin is an actual object? No, it's no. just so then what are they mining? That's what, what are you yeah, talking so, about? So I'll just, I'll, I'll clarify the mining metaphor and then I'll talk a little bit about the environmental piece. So um, the, the mining metaphor is really just an illustration to talk a little bit about how it takes work to create a Bitcoin. Um, it's not free. You don't just press a button and create more like you could do for dollars. It can't be copy and pasted, right? right? Like the only copy and paste internet money are US dollars really, it's not Bitcoin. So mining is really just a metaphor. What mining does, it is the process by which new Bitcoin are created, but it is not the primary objective of Bitcoin mining as we call it. The primary objective of Bitcoin mining is to protect the decentralized network. We have taken away uh, uh, intermediate third parties like the banks and the government between our transactions. And the replacement for that is security through through computational power. Um, There is no way to remove the government and and large banks from your transactions without replacing that security with some other method. So that decentralized ledger needs to be protected through mining. So that's the primary uh, the primary reason why we would uh, why we mine. 
the the question about the impact on the environment is actually very like subtle and complicated. Um, it's the longest chapter in my book, uh, so it, because I think it is the most important piece of fear and uncertainty and doubt that the liberal like progressive and liberals attack Bitcoin with. To really understand Bitcoin's relationship with uh, with carbon emissions and electricity and all of the all of the impact that it has. You have to really learn and understand a lot about how electricity is produced, how the grid is maintained, how actually we can flip on a light switch and actually have power all the time. Uh, Bitcoin does an excellent job. And, you know, the, the power companies I talked to and research for my book actually told me, um, you know, like this is a theory going around Bitcoin circles, but this is actually confirmed by the power company. Like, the demand response and the ability to balance the grid that Bitcoin offers uh, electrical companies uh, saves uh, like the potential for all sorts of catastrophic things going on. Like it actually saves money for the energy company. It, it pr produces more reliable energy in people's homes. It does um, balance out the intermittent renewable energy sources. So if you have things like solar and wind, uh, that we would like to see more of uh, because they're more sustainable. Those are intermittent sources and Bitcoin is the perfect uh, baseload that is instantly um, adjustable for the changes in sort of intermittent uh, green energy sources. Um, it is perfectly suited to uh, be location agnostic and go to stranded energy sources and use energy that's being stranded right now. So this is non-rival consumer of energy. It's using electricity that nobody else can use and it bootstraps the production of, of green energy. So if you have a waterfall somewhere and you wanna you know, electrify a village uh, in, in a remote area, um, there's no demand for that electricity and there's no way to like monetize the electricity that you're producing until there's a demand for it. Bitcoin miners have been set up in all sorts of places all over the world um, to bootstrap the production of uh, like electricity made from sustainable sources until the demand picks up from uh, that location. So it's it's doing all sorts of things in relationship to the energy use, energy creation, energy sort of mitigation of greenhouse gases. Um, already, uh, Bitcoin is uses far more green electricity than the average, you know, if you plug in your electric car, like your Bitcoin mining is more green than that because Bitcoin miners are incentivized to find cheap, non-rival energy. Um, Bitcoin is also mitigating methane emissions through, from landfills and oil fields by using stranded energy that nobody else can access. And the methane is just going straight into the atmosphere. Uh, Bitcoin miners are able to locate at those places, turn that methane into energy, use the energy to monetize their infrastructure and actually reduce the carbon footprint to eventually like a negative carbon footprint because this methane is more dangerous to the to the atmosphere than actual you know, CO2 is. It's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> now, methane is extremely dangerous. And there's been, um, you know, constant talk about what we're going to be able to do in terms of building out our, um, hang on one second, getting a bad feedback. Is that, is that us? I don't know. No. Okay. So what I was saying is, um, you know, I happen to be uh, an advocate for nuclear power because we do not have the ability to get away from coal and natural gas fast enough. If we do not incorporate some type of a major energy source, 
that allows grids to properly function. We're going to see nightmaric uh, proportions in California if they really attempt to go this route of forcing everybody to have a plug-in automobile. Um, it's not going to it's not going to end well if they do that. Um, it's, uh, you know, we're not there It's not going to end well. Yeah, we can't get there. <laughs> Bitcoin can solve, right? Because if you have a reliable nuclear base load and then you supplement that with renewable sources like solar and, and wind, that, that can end like ocean thermal energy that's being produced right now. Like all of that stuff is actually supported and bootstrapped by Bitcoin. So like we can actually build out this, this infrastructure that's needed. If we want to really... If, if we really care, we, what we need to do is electrify everything and get green sources of energy to create that electricity. And that doesn't happen without, um, you know, some sort of Bitcoin mining because it's location agnostic. It can go anywhere. Um, you know, I mentioned my conversation with the executive at the energy company. I had two different conversations with this person. One was with the CEO on the, on the call and the other one was without the CEO on the call. The first one was like, oh, yeah, Bitcoin is bad. It's just looking for strings of digits. But the second call was like, we need this. Our energy companies are being forced to compete with one another right now for 20 years out about what are the best places to make solar energy? What are the best places to make uh, wind energy? And they're competing to buy land right now for that stuff. And, and there's no customers there to use the energy that they're going to produce. You can't transport electri electricity over power lines more than 300 miles. So you need to monetize that build out if you actually want to have more green energy. You need to monetize it. And the only way that can do it, like Bitcoin is uniquely situated to actually be that demand to bootstrap and to build up that green energy. And, and nuclear is an option and it's part of the puzzle also. Just want to add, just I think a lot of the the environmental flack for Bitcoin mining is a little bit um, anachronistic in a way that it, it deals a lot with how Bitcoin mining was really done in China. And so I think people, you know, think about historically more than half of Bitcoin mining has been done in China, coal based, very dirty um, and very pollutive. And so I think that is a a a background that folks hear when they think about Bitcoin mining, just, uh, you know, believe. And, and the truth of the matter is that that Bitcoin mining in China that was coal based doesn't really go on anymore. Um, most of the, the Bitcoin mining in China has been moved out of China as China kind of has moved away from Bitcoin mining in a lot of ways. But this is more about that's how China creates its power, right? They have coal based power uh, facilities that fund that, that fund their infrastructure and fund their industry that, that power their industry. So um, it's really not a Bitcoin specific issue. It's more this is how China powers itself. You know, type of issue. Um, yeah. The, the second thing, this no, just sorry, but oh, the second thing too is we have to think about just there, there are also you know costs to printing money and printing dollars uh, versus. Printing versus the inability to print Bitcoin, which I think are which I think are important, and so there is an economic cost to society from the government continuing to print money and leading to this cycle of inflation, which devalues your money, which devalues your wealth, which makes things more expensive. Whereas there, the supply growth story for Bitcoin is already set in stone, and so there is a a real cost to the current system that we have, a major cost to the current system that we have. And so 
while yes, it is costly to produce Bitcoin with power, the alternative of continuing down the path that we have right now, where we just print money, is far print dollars and fiat is far far worse for Americans and far far worse for society. All right, so, so that's an, we need to ahead, merge yeah. them with the Steve Show and see yeah, how that goes. Yeah, because I need to put the MMT hat on. So if if someone mm-hmm. is going to say that. You know, we have the ability to pay for these things because we are a currency issuer. We're one of, I think, like a dozen nations in the world that has the capability of doing this. Uh, You know, the biggest problem with printing money is the issue of inflation, which makes goods and services impossible to afford. But the biggest problem with the way we've printed money over the past two, three years is that the money doesn't go where it belongs. It doesn't go to the people who need it. In fact, this whole system is set up to screw working people. And yes. so when someone says we can, you know, print these dollars, as our friend Steve Grumbine will talk about, and I'm sure he will watch this episode to have his uh, response, if you will. <laughs> but the, the, the real issue here isn't that we are a currency issuing nation. It's that we have people with the levers of power that see to it that the money goes in the hands of people who do not need it, And it doesn't go into the hands of the people who do, creating an even greater imbalance and making it more and more impossible for people to actually afford goods and services, thereby balancing out the inflation and not having the same issue when it comes to printing the dollar. Because one dollar in is one dollar out. It's like taxes. Our taxes do not pay for the government to run. It's the it's the other way around. And if you haven't read uh, the Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. Now, granted, not everything in that book you're going to agree with, but there are basic concepts that they talk about when it comes to tax and spend that do make a lot of sense because we're not balancing the budget like we do at the at the local and the state level where we have to literally use our taxes to fund the local and state government, whereas at the federal government, they can print money in order to make sure that we don't default on debt or who knows what else. But there are serious misses here because what's happening in a lot of these online circles is it's like people form camps. They only want to say that Bitcoin's the way or that UBI is the way or modern monetary theory is the way. I think there's a little bit of everything that if they were to work together, we could probably solve a lot of these economic crises that we have. Bottom line, the corporate special interests of this country dominate our government and dominate our daily lives. And that more than anything else is the biggest problem. That's why we can't have nice things. So, so I, I agree with almost everything that you said. I think that it's absolutely true that the, the way the government has been printing money and and we don't need to go back two or three years, we can go back much farther is really one of the primary drivers of inequality. Um, and it's something called the Cantillon effect. And it's not uh, if we have a better system out there, um, the, the problem is with misaligned incentives. There is no system by which people get to print money for free um, and distribute it in a way that's equitable because there's no incentive to do so. So, um, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I, and maybe we just have different solutions to that problem. But I think the ability for our nation to print money um, are at the federal level. Um, it does not really solve anything, right? No nation has really printed its way into prosperity by printing paper 
ever in the history. Many have fallen and many have collapsed. And certainly this is how the Roman Empire uh, collapsed because they started clipping coins and debasing their money. Um, and the soldiers wouldn't fight for them anymore for this fake money. And this is exactly the roadmap that we've seen before. What I, what I will say is that we are in a privileged position as Americans because we do print the world's reserve currency and we do so for free. We have a lot of seniorage. We get the, Our government gets money by printing it. We don't fund our government by uh, taxes. We really fund it by printing money. But the real problem with that is that it allows the American government to enact uh, neo-colonialism all over this nation, all over the, the globe, because it controls the money that everybody has to use and it can print as much as it wants and it can uh, sort of pull the levers and put um, you know, disadvantaged countries uh, in, a, in a disproportionately tough spot. Um, the American government essentially controls the IMF and the World Bank who decides how uh, loans are structured to alleviate poverty all over the world. And every one of those loans comes with stipulations that makes the poverty worse, harder to pay back, and makes those nations that aren't us more indebted to us. So I think that it's not just a domestic problem where we can print money because we issue our money. Like printing the money actually has a downstream effect on all of these other nations that have to rely on the dollar and have no voice in the system. Um, and it's really becomes impossible for them to, to, to grow um, and have sovereignty if, if the United States is pulling all the levers. Um, and then the same thing is true for the Euro and, and other sorts of currencies that, um, you know, you know, France in particular for decades has been controlling, you know, 15 nations on the African continent and forcing them to use an inferior money um, and taking away their monetary sovereignty. Like this is a real problem. And like Bitcoin is a, a politically neutral and uh, geopolitically neutral money. And everybody would have to compete on the same playing field if we had it, which is should be really scary to Americans, but it's actually kind of fair. We have a, we have like a logistical question here. Yeah, sure. What crypto exchange is the most honorable to have a wallet with and trade on? Thank you for asking one to see more. That's great. Um, uh, Craig, do you want to answer? Or should uh, I? <laughs> I mean, my I'll, I'll tell you this. My my preferred um, way to uh, purchase Bitcoin is through. I'll just to be frank. I, I use Swan Bitcoin. It's a, a service that you buy directly, um, you buy Bitcoin directly in what's known as dollar cost averaging way, um, which is you can buy a little Bitcoin every day, every other day, once a week, once a month, however often or inoften uh, that you want. And they charge a, a small fee. And what they do is they create a, a system whereby they either custody it for you um, in your own segregated account, or they deliver it to you in your own hard wallet. So that's basically how I do it. I buy my Bitcoin through Swan. They send it to me. I control it in my cold storage wallet uh, offline. So, you know, if you want to trade Bitcoin, you know, and kind of move in and out, I mean, you know, some of these exchanges, you know, are, are okay for a short period of time, whether it's a Coinbase or a Kraken or Gemini, but you know, from a long-term perspective about building wealth and and owning, you know, this pristine collateral and this store of value, you want to be able to purchase Bitcoin, remove it from exchange and control it yourself in self-custody or something that's known as multi-custody, which is a, you know, trusted third party, which, 
kind of assists you in in that process. Because as we've seen with some of the fraud and some of the issues, you know, it, and and the phrase in the community is "not your keys, not your coin." Um, if your Bitcoin is on an exchange, in theory, it can be used by the exchange provider to, you know. Like we saw with FTX, kind of make other loans or do other trading, and you may not, may not actually be your Bitcoin. So, the safest way to do it is to to purchase it um, and remove it from exchange and kind of hold it offline. Now, that obviously you know in re- necessitates that you be uh, a grown up, right? It, it's a responsibility to kind of store your wealth away from a bank or away from an exchange or away from some other custody. Like, you know, you have to put it, you have to think about how you want to secure your wealth. And this is, I think, something that folks are scared of and and are concerned about. But ultimately, I mean, this is, this is, we've been doing this for thousands of years, right? I mean, people have to store their wealth in the way that they know how to do and maybe use third-party providers to help them. But, um, you know, think about your think about money in a bank. I mean, we've seen this over the last you know few months here. I mean, four banks have have gone under, um, you know, in, in basically record time. And if you have deposits in those banks, cash deposits above the FDIC limit, it's not which is two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which may get changed. We can talk about that. But deposits over that limit are not insured. Those that's not your your money is not there. Um, and so. We, you know, we need to be thinking more carefully about our own money and how we store it and how we control it. Um, and, and Bitcoin kind of provides a logical uh, method by which you can store your wealth offline. And, and it's not for illicit purposes. It's not for uh, tax evasion. It's not for any of that. It's just, you know, this is a way. So it's, it's controlled by you and you get to make the decisions about how you spend it, what you're going to do with it. Uh, like Jason mentioned before, how you might want to donate it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's yours. You get to do what you want. It's private in that regard. There's no censorship. You, you know, like I said, you can do whatever you want with it. Can, I, I just want to go back to the, the question that was asked too, because it's, there's a couple of important things. One is, um, you know, like I don't recommend a crypto exchange, right? Like I, like I'm Bitcoin only and Swan, uh, which Craig said, Swan is a company that's Bitcoin only. I use Strike, which I do. I actually buy fifty cents worth of Bitcoin every hour. It happens automatically, and then I, and then I put that into a hard uh, wallet that's offline. It's cold storage and it's safe, and I can do a multi-sig, you know, setup where nobody can really take it without my permission. Um, so you, like, that's the answer, right? Like, find yourself a Bitcoin-only service that works in your jurisdiction. But the real answer is keep learning about Bitcoin. Like you don't, don't go out and buy some because of you heard me say something to now, you know, just now or something. Uh, keep learning about Bitcoin. Here's the, the beautiful thing is because it is hard to learn about our legacy financial system. And there's a lot of different viewpoints out there to learn it from. Learning about Bitcoin is the number one way that I think people can learn about the legacy financial system, how money is made, why it's made, why does the printing of money create wealth inequality by the incentive structure, not just because we have a couple of bad actors in there, but by the literal incentive structure. So just keep learning about Bitcoin. You'll keep learning about the financial system. And every single person that I've told this to, uh, the more they learn about Bitcoin, the more they like it. And the more they learn about the legacy financial system, the less they like it. Last thing we want to address before you guys go, um, Double K is an amazing supporter of our show. She is a huge, huge supporter of modern monetary theory. Uh, mm-hmm. Bitcoin isn't insured. So I want to piggyback that on one other point. 
And that is also a point that our friend Neo Maximus brought up, which is how do we ensure that a crypto-based global economy isn't controlled by the entities who own the most crypto, aka the central banking system we currently have, and can crash and, or you know, in this case, pump and dump the economy at will? Because how does one even determine what makes the price of a Bitcoin go up or down? So the number one answer I have to that is stop saying crypto, start mm-hmm. saying Bitcoin. Like it's because you cannot, it does not matter how much Bitcoin you have. You cannot control the issuance of Bitcoin. You cannot pump more Bitcoin into the economy to make it better for the elites or for the people who are at the top. You cannot take Bitcoin away from the economy because you're worried about inflation got out of hand. Every single time we've left these decisions up to human beings, they are they're corrupted by their incentives. They let the bubble fill up too high um, and the and Bitcoin cannot change. Its monetary policy is fixed and set. As long as there's computers and uh, electricity and humans, it will not be changed. So it's not controlled by anybody. Even if I had a lot of Bitcoin, I cannot change the monetary policy around Bitcoin. The economy, people who are acting in the economy, making economic decisions about what to buy, what to invest in, can do so with certainty, knowing what the issuance schedule is. We don't need to pay attention to the Fed and if they're going to raise rates by this much, right? We just sort of let all of that go and start investing and creating and building uh, in a Bitcoin economy. It can't be manipulated in, in the way that dollars can or that people in control of the fiat uh, legacy financial system control and manipulate uh, their our monetary policy that we have now. It just can't. Uh, other cryptos uh, are just like fiat in that way, by the way. That's why I was saying, stop saying crypto. Right. Start so saying- let's say you go and you get rid of, you sell all your Bitcoin, you sell, or whoever somebody is who has a lot of it, right? Sells it. What sure. it, does that, that has, you're saying that has no effect on the value of Bitcoin. It might affect the U.S. dollar price of a Bitcoin. It does not affect the the value of Bitcoin, right? There's a difference between price and value. The value of Bitcoin is that I can, uh, without trusting anybody else and not relying on them to actually do it, send value from one person to another across the Internet instantaneously with a low fee without having to worry about if I'm going to upset a political dictator or if my bank is not going to like who I'm sending that money to and just freeze it. That's the value. Um, and I can do that anywhere in the world uh, for a fraction of a penny. Um, you know, like Western Union does not exist anymore. Like, like in this world, five years from now, if you are trying to send money back home uh, in a remittance sort of way, like there's no reason to be paying 10, 15, 20 percent to Western Union anymore. You can literally send your value across the Internet for a fraction of a penny instantly with no chance that it gets censored, siphoned or frozen. That's the value of Bitcoin. The price I don't care about. I'm not going to trade my my Bitcoin for dollars. Um, I'm going to trade it for goods and services that other people value. And that's how I'm going to spend it and save um, in, in that way. Just, yeah, I mean, just a, a tangible thought about supply growth. I mean, if you think about every other good or commodity in the world, the, the higher the price goes, the more capital we will spend to try to you know, get that good, right? So for oil, oil prices go to $100 or $150 a barrel. We're going to be spending more money to extract more oil out of the ground so producers can sell more oil. Uh, for gold, similarly, as the gold price rises, you can expect there'll be more mining for gold. Um, as we make more cars, right? Pr- car prices go up. You know, there'll be more production for for cars. As the Bitcoin price rises, 
there is no ability to increase supply. This is the key. The supply growth algorithm is already set in stone. You know, until the middle of 2024, 900 coins a day. From 20, middle of 2024 to the middle of 2028, 450 coins a day. 225 coins a day for the next four years. It's already algorithmically and program, programmable. And so the price has no impact on the supply growth. And I think that I think that's key. Um, every other commodity, every other good in the world can be can be changed by a, a supply response to a price action. And so that I think was was a, a beautiful uh, feature of a Bitcoin. As a matter of fact, as the price goes up and more people try to mine for it, the difficulty adjustment moves higher. Right? It becomes harder to solve the riddle. It becomes harder to solve the algorithm. So. Bitcoin's kind of dealt with that as well. It, it's a it's a fascinating monetary technology that kind of um, really is is solved many of the issues with the current system you know that we have now. We want to thank you guys both for coming on this evening. This has been a very insightful conversation. Agreements here, disagreements there, but that's the nature of the political and economic world. We're supposed to not agree on everything. We're supposed to have consensus on everything. And the consensus is we live in a world today, a country today, where we have zero control over our economy. And in terms of our political leaders, they answer to a very high power that is out of reach of just about everybody. So to say that we want to have, much as Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and many leaders of our past have emphasized not having a centralized control of our economy, um, that is coming to a head today. And it'll be interesting to see how it, that evolves over time. Both to Craig and Jason, we want to thank you both for coming on. If there's anything you want to plug, mention before you go, what yeah. you might be working on, by all means, the floor is yours. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me on. This is this is great. This is actually, um, you know, I'm used to talking to Bitcoiners who are already convinced. So it's really actually great to, to get new questions. So thank you for having me. It was a great talk. Um, the book that I wrote is called A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin. And it, it just came out last week. So it's, it's fresh off the presses and it's actually novel in the space. Um, and I would appreciate it. if people were interested in this discussion and they're just lifelong learners and they want to learn more, you can go to my website. It's uh, bitcoinprogressive.com. Uh, there's links to buy the book. There's more information, more videos, more resources there. Um, so I just appreciate it if you would do that. And and honestly, like it, like I said, if you're just curious person and you want to learn more about a new way, to, a new lens to view some of these problems, then this is the book for you. Any chance you did an audio? So the audio, yeah, great. So the 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 book, the paperback book just dropped. The the Kindle or ebook version will happen over the summer, and then the publisher will release an audio version that you can listen to in the fall. So that's all sort of yeah. timed up by the publisher. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Because yeah, I've gotten yeah. to become a kind of a lazy reader myself. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it exists and it, like you touch it, it's real. Like okay, like, cool. The progression is like a Bitcoin. You can touch this book. You exactly. You can hold it in your hand. <laughs> Greg, anything before we go, brother? Yeah, you know, nothing specific. I just think it's great. You know, I, I saw that I had reached out to Jason a while ago, and I saw that you know this book is coming out, and and you know as a I guess rare progressive Bitcoiner like myself, I, I you know immediately just kind of reached out to him on Twitter and and said, hey, I know these progressives who. 
host a podcast, I think you should get on there. And I think that that's that's instrumental in this community, right? I think the Bitcoin community is a community that tries to help. It's trying to quote orange pill the everybody else, right? We're trying mm-hmm. to kind of teach the you know the, the 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 spirit of Bitcoin and how it could be a a change for good. And and what what frustrates me is when the narrative is being hijacked by you know folks like Ted Cruz or or folks on the right who are are util- and, and not to say that Bitcoin needs to be political, but it's a, it would be a shame if progressives and liberals can't couldn't appreciate the value that Bitcoin has to you know help eradicate wealth inequality by creating a new system and by you know seeking to fix the money and ultimately when we fix the money you know we'll really start to fix the problems and i think that's that's really something that um you know this community is uh you know is trying to do so um you know that that's nothing to plug but wanted to uh you know thank you again for having me on and it was a pleasure meeting you jason live and uh you know, thanks yeah. again thank you. thank you guys for coming on thank you gentlemen we will definitely be in touch Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You're very welcome. Bye. Thank you. Bye guys. So I think it's interesting that we were also sort of talking about the, that it came up about the debt situation and how we cause debt in other places. That actually is one of the strategies of colonialism. And we will be discussing that next week because next week yes. we are having on the author. His name is John, John Perkins. Perkins. Um, it is the third version of Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And the He's entire. Been very high on this book. I, well, I, I'm liking it. I mean, I, it's look, it's basically the concept of what we have done, what China is doing, and it's going into countries and purposefully getting them to be beholden to you. Um, for money, for infrastructure and different things that, that they want. And then when they default on their loan, which it's set up for them to do that, now we have another country that's part of the empire that we can either extract resources from them. And it's just, um, it's disgusting, really. Yeah, and of course- you know, the predators. Yeah, the big issue here between JR, Double K, anybody who obviously is on the side of MMT, again- I'm there too, but I also think we have to be honest about what happens in certain countries like Venezuela, where they attach their currency to ours, and we could just basically tank their economy at will. So I can understand the appeal of a decentralized currency system. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I do think that the argument is obviously very sound to be made where what determines the value of a Bitcoin? And I don't think the way that they answered it was necessarily convincing. You know, how do you know that a Bitcoin is worth $28,000? How do we know that a Bitcoin two years ago was worth $56,000? And, and, and the other thing is, and then what does that mean in Europe or yeah. Russia or wherever? Like, I how don't does understand. it go against the euro or the yen? Because I guess the, the idea is that it's its whole own thing. But if that's sure. the case, then that would sort of, I don't know. Then it would have to be I, universal. It would have to be the well, same it is, value everywhere. But it, but it kind of, it is if you're using it amongst itself. The but everybody problem, has to pay a different amount for it. See, I don't know. I, I still, it's, and guys, quite honestly, I have no money to invest in anything. So it really doesn't apply to me. We could have had a stockbroker yeah. on telling me about stocks. And just, that's so, nice. and just so you guys know, we will not be having a podcast on Wednesday night. We are having a podcast on Friday, starting a, most likely at three o'clock in the afternoon. We're going to have two guests currently. We may have a third. You we'll realize see. that I have carpool at that time, but that's okay. You well, you clearly know, me, don't just, yes. I, I don't care because, you know, it's all about me. 
I clearly, because I don't do that early in the afternoon because I have a carpool situation, but okay. You do, well, what time is your carpool? I pick up at three o'clock. That's when school gets okay, out. Okay, so, so then I'm just we saying. may have to start a little later or- I don't know what's going on, will guys. Will 3.30 work? Is that- It's gotten it close for me, but again, I, I we, maybe we should okay. talk about this. Okay, we will talk, but we will be doing an afternoon live stream. I'll talk to Steve. We may have to adjust the time a little bit. Uh, we are supposed to have uh, the head of the Florida Democratic mm -hmm. Party, Nikki Freed, scheduled to come on Friday at 4 p.m. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Um, yeah, see, four is doable. I don't need to go before that. So if you want to go after that, we could go after yes, that. Yes, okay. Well, I'll talk to Steve, and hopefully okay. we'll be able to adjust that time. He will be a sport, if you will. We're still we in the daytime. We are in the daytime. He cannot go in the nighttime. No. That's okay. okay. Once in a while. Uh, but I do think that it is important to have this conversation. I think it is of tantamount importance for people to understand that you can't just wash away universal basic income. You cannot just wash away Bitcoin. You cannot just wash away modern monetary theory. You cannot just say that we're printing money and because it doesn't go. Again, there are people who still think that our dollar is valued against gold. There's people that think their tax dollars pay for things. They, and there are people who think that the federal government, macroeconomics, is the same as state and local government, microeconomics. No, they think that there's like the, the, the accounting office where they sit there and they count up all the tax dollars. Oh, yeah, they're really convinced and, that that's how it And works. then once they- Where are my tax much, dollars going? Well, whatever I hear people saying, where are my tax dollars going? But I, what I would like to do is let's shift that to- our collective resources. Where are our collective resources going? Because that actually is a fair question. And when we talk about like our collective resources paying for wars and, and not funding things that we want it to fund, that's a fair a thing to say. But we have to stop saying our tax dollars. So I think that that's, I'm going to, I'm going to discuss this with Steve, if that would be like a, a you know, an acceptable solution for me to say things like our collective resources should not be going to X, Y, and Z. Yes. But I also understand why people don't trust the central government. Why would you? Our government does not work for us today at all. It works for like five people. Yeah, it has been completely <laughs> manipulated to the point in which we don't have any say. We can't even have a say in who runs for president of the United States. And that is a perfect segue to a very important clip that you're all going to see. Because as I have discussed, and we have had very strong opinions about both RFK and MW, running against President Biden, the fact of the matter is they don't have a chance because the Democratic Party will ensure they don't have one. They will literally manipulate the actual primary I process. I just don't understand how this is newsworthy at this point. Didn't we all learn this in 16? Like, wasn't but now, that clear? But now they're willing to just say it. Well, yes, because so we've all accepted it. On the what? No, we haven't accepted it. It's that people haven't figured out a way to collectively fight back. And that's because there's too many chefs in the kitchen. But nevertheless, when one is saying that we're just not going to have any primary debates, how far away do you think you are when you get to that point from it becoming we're just not having a primary. Now, and here's the thing, now, and I will say this very clearly, in this particular case, in this particular year, I don't think it matters. Um, Maybe it doesn't. I don't think it matters. However, that being said, um, I also would like to argue, and I've said this many, many times, that we don't actually have real debates. We have political theater. The debates are a complete waste of time and money. So th to me, the idea of not having debates is actually good. Because they're not having real debates anyway. Well, I so don't, all that well, is no, is a political I, I do circus. not agree with that at all. I actually think that what both of the two uh, 
primary challengers are talking about is actually important. You've even said so yourself, particularly about RFK. That he's Oh, I think what they're saying is very important. And I think that they should have a platform to say what they want to say. I think debates are a complete waste of time. They're not actual debates. So I think people could have a platform to say what they want to say. Well, I think but even it doesn't if they attempted to, be... to actually have one, would it actually amount to much is the question. Um, well, no, it won't because the party is not going to bless it. And so the party isn't going to host the debate. And the truth is, is guys, these are private clubs. These are private clubs. They don't owe anything to us as a collective. They really don't. And if you don't want to be in their private club, don't register in their private club, but their club, their rules, and they the don't want to host system does not allow debate. you to succeed without first pass the post options, which is why we're stuck in this quagmire. But we're going to hear from Simone Sanders, one of the biggest turncoats I've ever seen in politics. Boy, did she sell out. And she hides behind identity politics like no- she's she actually makes Joy Reid. OK, reasonable. but let me say this to El, uh, most Adamas. The problem is, is that any debate that they would have, let's say the Democrats said, yes, we're going to have a debate. Come on, Marianne and RFK. Let's all get together and have a debate. Do you think it's going to be fair? Do you think they're not going to set Joe up to be on top? Do you think that it's going to be run in any way, shape or form other than to make Joe look good? Well, that may be true, but that was the same thing that happened with Bernie and Hillary and Bernie still figured out a way to nail her ass to the wall more often than not. And the same was true. Now, but Bernie is Bernie. Bernie is Bernie. But in 2020, Bernie did not take the gloves off against Joe the way he did against Hillary. And a lot of that, unfortunately, has to do with the fact that he is a lifer politician on Capitol Hill with very few friends, and Joe happens to be one. I don't, I don't, I don't. Let's I don't hear what that. Simone Sanders has to say about a primary challenge. Bobby Kennedy Jr., doing well. He's at 19%, hasn't really gotten that that much out there. I mean, it's, and I'm starting to hear more and more talk about him. Are we going to actually have a challenge here? I'm trying not to laugh, Joe. There's not going to Wait, be. Can I just, can I stop you for a second? Yes. Do you know how many people said the same thing about Donald Trump That's in 2015 true. on yes, this show? Except said I will the note. same exact Left. thing. Yes, because there was going to be a Republican primary. But I really think that uh, the mealy mouth Democrats, as I like to call them, and some of my progressive friends who would like to live in a fantasy land, they need to come back to reality. And the reality is this. The sitting president of the United States of America is a Democrat, a Democrat that would like to run for reelection so much so that he has declared a reelection campaign. In that case, the Democratic National Committee will not facilitate a primary process. There will be no debate stage for Bobby Kennedy, Maureen, Marianne Williamson, or anyone else. So we're going to have another Bobby Kennedy in an empty chair in the debate, right? There will be no debate. Yeah, no debate. (laughs) The Democratic National Committee administers the debates, and they're not going to set up a primary process for debates to for someone to challenge the head of the Democratic Party. can't even. But here's the thing. She's she's not wrong. And I would like to know historically, when have there been primary challenges to sitting presidents in there? And when has the party? I'm just curious. In past years, when has that happened? I'm where surprised the party that you're that? even. No, well, no, it's not a question of the party allowing it to happen. It's a question of whether or not democracy is allowed to rule the day. Not in a private club. That's. But you're wrong. I'm not. That's you why are. they have super delegates. I'll they tell don't you why you're right. No, t- once again, you're wrong. And I'll explain <laughs> to you why you're 
wrong. I don't totally so. wrong. No, you're wrong. You're I'm dead. pretty sure I know what legally a private club means and what they're entitled I to do. I understand that, but you're still wrong. And I'll explain why. Because in 1968, there was a challenge to LBJ, even though he fully intended to run for re-election and was in it for the first two primary contests. But when it became obvious that either Eugene McCarthy or more specifically Bobby Kennedy was likely to win the nomination, he wouldn't even face it. He dropped out. Now, of course, this was on the backdrop of the Vietnam War, which by 1968, overwhelmingly, the country was like, get the F out of the, out of the South Pacific. And of course, we wouldn't do it because the military industrial complex had already taken but over. But you just basically proved my point. There hasn't been where the party has allowed for there to be a challenge. No, they, st- they tried to not have a challenge, but they did it anyway. But then what happened? Ultimately, Nixon won, but that's because the Democratic establishment- And every time the convention- there's been one, the other side wins. Bobby Kennedy gets assassinated. He would have beat Nixon in 68. All I'm saying, could have, would have, should have. Every time that there is a primary I'm challenger the- to his incumbent president, the other party wins. So the truth is, Joe was right. He was very prophetic. No, he will be a one-term but once president. once again, I am not done, and you will not let me finish. Because so ju- you're not understanding what I'm saying, and you're arguing against the point that I'm not up, making. Let, may I continue? Sure. Sure. So then you had Ted Kennedy, another Kennedy, challenge Jimmy Carter in 1980. And that was an extremely close race that Jimmy ended up winning by, I think, 10 points or so. It was very close. Then you had Pat Buchanan challenging George H.W. Bush in 1992. Did they host debates on that in the primary? I believe. Did they host debates I'm not with the 100% sitting president? Sure, but they, that's the question I'm asking you. That's what I keep asking you. In what historical context has a party who runs their own debates allowed for a primary challenge to a sitting president and hosted debates? When has that happened? I'd have to check to see if the debates actually took place, but there was a legitimate primary. There's going to be a primary. They're going to qualify. That, Simone that's, Sanders. But that's not what she's saying. But she's what not she, the boss. I understand she's not the boss, but she's saying the quiet part out loud, which is we are going to do everything in our capacity yeah. to basically subvert the democratic process. I understand that. And again, they are having a primary. It illegally will happen. She is not the boss of that. People qualify. They're in the primary. That's how it goes. This is a private club. They're choosing to not host debates for a challenger. That's always been the case. Now, the I don't understand why this is news. Now, well, I'm, well, now let me explain. Because you still haven't told me how I'm wrong about that. So you are wrong and you are dead wrong because, again, throughout history, when does a legitimate primary take place against a sitting president? It's only happened a handful of times, but when does it happen? You, you, it happens... When an incumbent president is extremely unpopular and extremely weak. And if you look at LBJ on the backdrop of the Vietnam War, when you look at Jimmy Carter as a whole, when you look at George H.W. Bush post uh, the Gulf War, and now when you look at Joe Biden, what do you have? You have extremely weak and vulnerable incumbent presidents who ultimately went on to lose in spite of the fact that they were challenged in a primary. Now, what is indisputable over the course of what happens during these primaries is that the party establishment will deliberately manipulate the process to protect the incumbent, even if it means 
they that will seal their fate in the general election, which will happen in 24. Well, I mark, think that happens regardless of what they do. But in this case, mark my words, Trump or DeSantis is the next president. And the reason I know this to be a fact is because the Democratic Party is showing you right now that this is just the tip of the iceberg of how far they're willing to go to literally screw this. Okay, do still don't see care. how I'm wrong in what I said to you. The reason you're wrong is because their perspective is to say, yeah, we know he's unpopular. We know that people want to challenge him. We know that the likelihood that the GOP Guys, am wins. am I crazy? All I'm saying, the one statement I made that he keeps, to, I don't understand, is that the Democratic Party is under no obligation to host debates. I didn't say I, they were. Okay, and never, if I, and I've asked you, when has that happened? And then I said to you, there still is a primary, and you keep telling me I'm wrong, and I don't understand what it is you're telling me I'm wrong about. What I'm saying is that they Why are, am I wrong? Because even if you don't agree with either one of the two candidates that are challenging him, they have every right to hold an actual primary. What I'm saying. They are holding a primary. I don't agree. I will tell Here's the difference. Once again, we will disagree on this. They're, they are going to do everything in their power to shut down the primaries. Yeah. They are going to have no faith voting in these primary states. They are going to say, by default, we are with the president of the United States, even if he can't open his eyes. Yes, that's what they do Doesn't every matter. time. Now, this is where that's the Democratic again, Party. The Democratic Party, but this is actually a good thing. I think, in a way, this further proves that if you think that the Democratic Party is better than the Republican Party, you're nuts. Well, and again, I, and I'm going to go back to my original point, which I really do think is the ultimate thing here. Is it really doesn't matter. They can't win anyway. It's, they could have a primary. They could not have a primary. They could have a debate. They could have Marianne. They could have RFK. They could have they could have a frigging Congo line of candidates. They could spend money in the world to have big fancy debate parties. They could do all of that. They're still going to lose or they could do none of it and they're still going to lose. And so I do like to me every year when I watch all the ridiculous nonsense, first of all, they don't ever have legitimate primaries. It's always a farce as as known by the world to super delegates. Yes. So they don't have yes, their primaries no, anyway. So the only difference is, is because. Because there's a sitting incumbent, they're choosing not to host debates. Now, Simone Sanders is not the boss of the party. And so she can say there isn't a primary when, in fact, legally, yeah, there is. And so the fact that they don't want to host a debate, that's their choice. It's a private club. And if people don't like the rules of that club, a la Marianne or RFK, then they should run in a party that doesn't have those rules. Here's what here's what I'm saying, Double K. And I, you know, I love you and I appreciate everyone's opinion here. Everyone has something important to add to the conversation. Wolverine Warren, really appreciate your feedback. It's not a question of thinking too small regarding Marianne or RFK. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is the actual manipulation of the electoral process. Now, where I think this is actually different than almost universally any other circumstance I've ever seen. And remember, former Governor Bill Weld was attempting to primary Trump in 2020 before COVID even came in, you know, front and center. The problem is, is that Trump is extremely popular in the GOP and with independents, which is why when they did, I think, like one poll with Bill Weld against Donald Trump, it was 97 to three. That's it. That tells you all you need to know. Whereas in this case, you've got President Biden in a three-way race in the 60s. 
Do you know how bad that is? Yeah, but you're you're saying that as if the numbers in any way have any impact on the party leadership's determination of what they're going to do. It doesn't. They don't care. I know they don't care. Okay, but so here's that's the where, thing. But them. here's where, to double case point, where this becomes actual electoral manipulation, the likes of which exactly. we have never seen before. They are actually changing states for the purpose of screwing over other parts of the country. Now, listen, I can see the valid argument they have about to. taking Iowa out of caucus state because of how incompetent they are, how corrupt they are. I have issues with the caucus system. And so what they've done there, which, again, they've talked about eliminating the caucus system in Iowa. And I think they probably would have done this anyway. But because of the fact that Biden didn't do well there and because we know what happened the two times in 16 and 20, the lengths that they'll go to within the establishment to actually screw the populist candidate. Notice as well that in Iowa, Iowa is a perfect example of this. That doesn't happen on the GOP side. It's so obvious what, what a big deal this is, because if you remember, it was 2008 that Mike Huckabee, Mike Huckabee won, in, won the caucus in Iowa. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember who won the caucus in 2012. I don't think it was Mitt Romney. I, I could be wrong. It, it, it may have been him, but I think it may have been somebody else. And in 2016, it was Ted Cruz that won the primary in Iowa. If the intent was to just go with whatever the, you know, the corporate establishment wanted, you would be faced with a similar situation. But that's not how it works over there. And that's why Iowa is staying as the first caucus state. New Hampshire is staying as the first primary with the GOP. New Hampshire plans to hold their first in the state primary, regardless of what the Democratic Party says. They don't care if they're going to be penalized for it. The fact that you put South Carolina first, you never I've never seen anything like this before. The fact that they've actually changed where the primary begins, that's never been done. Not like that, to completely flip the script. And the fact that they're throwing Michigan in there, which I actually think is a good thing, Michigan does belong there. And they were attempting to put Georgia at the front of the line. Now, the Secretary of State of Georgia is a Republican, and he said, you can, you know, piss off. We're keeping it as the March 13th instead of, you know, February 10th or whatever date they had in mind. So those things are, uh, you know, it's it's a big deal, and and I do think that his, uh, you know, it couldn't even fit it on one message. He got a lot texted. Uh, but I think that this, but but in my opinion, I actually think this is a good thing because it exposes the system even further to just how corrupt it is to basically tell you that yeah, your vote doesn't mean anything. These things are predetermined. And I and I also think as somebody who has run as a Democrat in a very unwelcoming, unaccepting uh, place, which is a microcosm for the national level for anybody challenging the sitting people in party, it's you're playing in their sandbox. And if you and if you don't like that, then you have to first get in before you can change the sandbox. Unfortunately, until that happens, you're playing by their rules. And if you don't yeah. like that, but the thing is, you need to be realistic about it. How anybody watched what happened in 2016 and thinks that the Democratic Party in any way has what would be considered a legitimate primary. 
then they were not paying attention. So I don't know. So to me, like at this point, now that we're, we're talking about this, like they're not going to have. Okay. So then they didn't have, when they had an open seat and they were unfair, what the hell did people think they were going to do when they have an incumbent sitting there in terms of an accepting a primary? Cause I could tell you at a local level, they don't let you in. They're not going to welcome us. They didn't let us speak at any of the Dem clubs. We didn't get to talk to her. We didn't get to debate her. We didn't get nothing. So why would anybody think that would be different anywhere else? And like, that's what's so shocking to me. Like, why, why is this even newsworthy? Well, it's, it is newsworthy. They don't have primaries in the Democratic Party. They do not entertain primaries. Right now, we're living in a world where they're actually telling you to your face, no, we don't believe in the electoral process. We don't. So for those of you who think that the Democratic Party is more Democratic than the Republican Party, you're wrong. They're not. And they're never going to be until the system breaks. This is what they want. They want it this way. And the other problem that we also have is the people that were supposed to go to Capitol Hill and actually cause trouble, they haven't done it. Not a, not even a little bit. In fact, they're even worse because the expectations for people to actually help those that are in desperate need, they don't actually go there and attempt to do that. You see people on the right all the time. Marjorie Taylor Greene is an effing lunatic, and I am sure most people don't want to deal with her. But you know what? She's popular as hell, and she ain't going nowhere. So if somebody on the left, like an Alex, decided to do something like that, they wouldn't go anywhere either. They'd be so damn popular, they wouldn't even know what the hell to do with themselves. But for whatever reason, progressives are spineless. They're all, I I think, and look, it has to do with everything. Like progressives tend to care more about their feelings than about a lot of things. And I would also think that when you're talking about Congress people like Alex, she's concerned about who she's working with, her work environment, getting along with people. And also, yes, you do have to play nice to be effective in a political standpoint. Like she's not going to, ever be legislatively successful in any capacity if you don't play nice with people. So it really depends on what your priorities are. Are your priorities to stay there and, you know, grow into Nancy Pelosi? Or is your are you there to cause a fight? And one know? thing I want to say to Wolverine Warren before you go again, the movement is through labor. That's the movement. The movement, you know, vote and be involved. But in terms of where your money, resources and infrastructure goes, it all goes to labor. That's where it belongs, because that's where the biggest impact is going to have. And in the labor movement, that's where you get the most crossover between the Bernie faction and the Trump faction, where you throw out the crazies, the, the people who are in it for the culture wars and the things that don't actually determine whether you can put food on the table and live a decent life and not have to worry about external problems that are coming, whether or not this person is allowed to debate or is actually getting something done. That's not the case here. And I think that that's a really good segue to our final topic, which, of course, is the debate that happened between Tim Pool and Lance from the Surfs. Now, we can play video or we can just talk about it. Let it be known that I have not watched this. I I only know about it. It's just I generally don't watch debates and I generally don't like to talk about other content creators. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the conversation went back and forth regarding different points. You know, one part of the conversation. Thank you, Mario. Uh, One of the points of the conversation between Lance and Tim was regarding abortion. And it's like, look, this is a wedge issue that is never going to have a consensus. There's always going to be people who have one opinion or the other. But let me assure you that when the overwhelming majority of people, in this case, about three out of four people, believe that women have 
have the right to do what they want with their body, including four out of five women. The only reason why the number's skewed in any capacity is because there's about half of men in this country who <laughs> think that they have a right to tell a woman what to do with their body. And it's like, but there's a baby inside. You can't carry a child, dickhead. And until you can, sorry, trans men, just got to keep it easy. Got to keep it 100%. <laughs> but, right. If you're not carrying a baby, you don't have an opinion about this. Actually, no, what you have is an opinion and that's all you have. The idea that you think you're going to control- Well, I just does, don't feel like it's. we need I, to debate this anymore. We really don't. The debate is over. The majority of people support a woman's right to choose. End of story. The fact that we're living in sort of this authoritarian regime where a minority of people have hijacked and controlled the policy for the majority, that's just a sign of a dysfunctional republic. But the reality is most people in this country, and I mean most people in this country, are pro-choice. So the fact that that's not, so I don't need to convince people of anything. Well, this is why I don't debate it. I don't need to convince people of that. We just need to actually have a functioning republic where the majority rules. If we had that, then we wouldn't be having this discussion. I hate having this discussion. Excuse me. It makes me want to, honestly, it makes me want to kill people when they start talking about taking away my bodily autonomy. Well, I'm sure this is the shit that I'm going to die for. I don't understand how we're still discussing this. I think that there's a lot of people who feel that way. And I think that Tim, unfortunately, has, you know, again, it's very convenient, Mr. Poole, when you can espouse an opinion about, well, what if a woman gets an abortion at nine months? It's like, dude, no one's getting an abortion at nine months. No one does that by choice. No one. No. No. I would venture to say, and I would love it, please, somebody, if you could find a documented case of a woman who just decided after eight, nine months, you know, I'm, I'm done with this, and they just sought out a late-term abortion and show me a documented case of, because I happen to know for a fact that there are only a couple of places in this country where you can even get a third trimester abortion. And so for any woman to like go do that, it's something that is not out of, oh, I just want to go do that. That's not a thing. Do you know when the overwhelming majority of abortions <laughs> take place within the first, first for the first trimester, sometimes the second, and that's it. And by the way, in order for women to even know if their baby has genetic issues, for example, to have an amnio, you are about somewhere between 16 to 20 weeks before you can even really assess that. So how is that going to work? It's like I would ask somebody, <laughs> if you know that... Your, your fetus is carrying a major birth defect that is going to give them 50-50 chance of living past the age of, I don't know, five, whatever it is. And that woman chooses what she considers to be, the technical term for it is, a mercy killing, then that's what it is. Because to think that you want people to actually go through life living through suffering pain every day simply because of your effed up beliefs, which let's be honest, when it comes to some, listen. They don't care about these kids. Are they, are they agreeing yeah. to prenatal care? They're not. Because are they offering us health care? And look, we're friendly with Tim, but at the end of the day, he says things specifically to appease his audience. Yeah. Because there's a lot of crazy people out yeah. there. Yeah. And he like gets a lot of money and he gets a lot of Like the person that decided to shoot up the mall in Texas. Now, I'm not blaming Tim. No. But understand, I'm gonna, I don't know if I shared this or not, but when I was um, looking at a, a commercial property when I first got into this, I was in this area in Pompano. It's and, shifty. 
And we had to go into some of the apartments to so just view what they were like. And I went into one of these like, you know, 400 square foot apartments that these people have to basically dwell in and they live and this is their life. It's not much, but it's what they have. It's not much different in places in Liberia. And That's to, probably and Dania true. And stuff, but but yeah. this guy was standing at his computer desk and what was he watching? He was watching Tim Pool. And he was watching very intently and very much immersed in what was going on. And you know what? There are a lot of people out there that are just angry at the world. There are a lot of men who are angry at women. And that's for a variety of different reasons, not the least of which is a lot of them can't get a date, can't maintain a relationship, can't maintain a well-paying job, so they can't provide. There's a lot of psychological warfare that goes on here. And I guarantee you that has a lot to do with why men do not think women have the right to control their body because for them, it's a way to control women because they feel like they cannot enjoy their lives because the women that they want to be with won't be with them. So there is this sort of F You see them as like the angry incel guys. Absolutely. I guarantee you that uh, there is a significant- I mean, other than the religion like faction of your like, you know, those family guys sure. with like, that have 12 kids that would never, I mean, you've got those people that the I would- Right, like those people that I wouldn't refer to as incel guys that are also probably very anti-choice. But you're saying it's the type of people we're talking about are oh, angry incel men. When they talk about- well, that's who shooting shit up. Well, that's, it's, it's not only that, it's the fact that their attitude is, it, that's like, if you're going to be libertarian, then you actually have to be libertarian. You can't pick and choose like what issues you think matter. Because on the one hand, it's like, I don't believe a woman has a right to choose, but I also believe that that child doesn't have any right to any government service to make sure that they survive the first few years of their lives. Well, it's how come the government gets to tell you what you can do with your body, but the government doesn't provide for your needs. Because, see, that's the difference in thought, really. Like, for me, the purpose of government, of civilization, is to create a system wherein resources are shared to create sort of like the best for everybody in a way that you couldn't have if you were living alone on an island. That's the point of a civilization. And the point of government is to facilitate that. Right. We don't. Why? why, How is it turned from for libertarians to think that the government's job is to police your body? How does that equate to libertarian? Because it gets to this whole idea of but that's a baby. It's their it's their autonomy, their rights, their their life. You know, what is it that they're entitled to that we are taking away from them? It's it's so because it's not. Well, and that's let's let's start with the language. It's not a baby, not a baby until it's outside. Before that. It's a fetus. And before that, an embryo, and prior to that, a zygote, and anything that you're going to, like, I just can't deal with people that don't do science. And this, on top of everything else, and this is why this issue became so hot, it became so poorly constructed from an argumentative standpoint. And let's face it, I, you know, look, Lance from the Surf has been on our podcast. Yes, JR Jr., Tim, I do think so. Jen, Jen has been on Tim Pool's podcast. I do not think that this was the best conversation in regards to how you talk about this issue. We have to debate this issue about a woman's right to choose just on a level on a level. This isn't even addressing this idea that a woman who is raped, who is a victim of incest, of physical and sexual abuse, of a child who is literally suffering while incubating, the idea that that's not allowed? Or now you've got, and well, the problem is when you make criminal liability, and this is where I actually know that there are very religious people who are, 
my, I'm telling you, my friend's mother, one of the most pro-life women I've ever met. And the problem with this is when you criminalize the abortion, you have doctors that are refusing to do procedures that are medically necessary. You have women that are having to be forced to carry ectopic pregnancies until their fallopian tubes, tubes burst, because only then can it qualify as an emergency in which you can perform an abortion. This is why Tim would never have you on to, dis to discuss this issue. Well, this is, I mean, you would, you would destroy but this, entire is, this is the problem. I mean, you have women right now that are suffering with, and so even people that are pro-life, and I mean, religious people are pro-life, they're not supporting ectopic pregnancies. No. They're just not. So, so I, I think that when you do something this extreme, you're really creating uh, more infant and baby mortality, that or maternal and infant mortality. That's what's going to start spiking. That's what's going to be a problem. And crazy religious people don't necessarily like that either. So this is a small group of people that are on board with this kind of restriction. Now, I, and now I'm, I'm just going to say this, and I'm a man, and I, and I am physically able to take care of myself. But I will say this. There have been different points in my life, uh, not sexual abuse, but I have been inappropriately touched whether you know well i always do shit that you think is inappropriate <laughs> i'm sorry and all i can say is i can imagine the feeling that one would have if they literally are forcibly penetrated and if that's not enough violently penetrated and if that's not enough impregnated by that violent penetrator and let's violent take it one step and let's take it one step further you are now pregnant with your rapist child and you are going to carry that baby to term if there is an argument for the second amendment in this country that's the one well i i just that's a good it's one, it's really just the whole i don't debate this anymore with people really because i just i get very incensed about it because it's just ludicrous that we're still having this discussion about my private parts and my personal medical situation like that's anybody else's business is just it's bizarre um but yeah no this is just going to make our health outcomes infinitely worse uh, and, and it's interesting because we just had the whole show on how unhealthy our country is, how we rank like 51st in the in the world in terms of overall health of a nation. When you look at things like life expectancy and these kinds of laws are only going to create a further inequality from us and the other civilized world. And it's just it's it's pathetic. Yes. There are going to be a lot of people that are going to die from this. Uh, and it's people die from an ectopic pregnancy bursting like that's you can die from that. Mm -hmm. And it's something that is so unnecessary to happen. And like, that's the kind of thing that we're going to see. We're going to see women being forced to carry dead fetuses. That has happened now. They're forced to carry a dead fetus and actually have to deliver a dead fetus because the doctors in certain places won't commit, won't you know, do the procedures. This is not what religious people have in mind, even them, I'm telling you. No, no. And the conversation, of course, also evolved on uh, the issue of Jordan Neely. Listen, was Jordan Neely conducting himself in a way on that train that was menacing and potentially dangerous to the patrons who were on the patrons who were on the train? Yes, absolutely. Should he have been killed? No. So when people feel the need to start this storyline of, 
Well, he's been arrested 42 right. times and he's got a wife. They try to make it like a criminal, like it's somehow, it's just a failing on the criminal justice part in particular. That's not the point of this. No. The point of it is that somebody was killed that didn't need to be killed. Why not just say, and listen, this is the thing that Tim Pool actually said very well, which is he clearly was a dangerous individual who had quite the rap sheet and may have been threatening and becoming very unlike. Again, three men held him down, and one of them held him down in a chokehold, in a rear choke, which, as Joe Rogan likes to point out, you can actually kill somebody by doing that. At the very least, put him unconscious, and in this case, no telling methamphetamine or whatever it was. I still don't understand why, with three people involved, you need to have someone in a chokehold. Like, if you have three people involved, is there not a way to physically restrain somebody without choking them? If three people are there to like, I don't understand that. So to me, that seems like you were proactively trying to harm somebody, not simply restrain them. We see this on the right all the time. And even though I tend to be considerably more conservative than Jen is when it comes to crime and punishment, this character assassination, especially character assassinations of the dead, is so insane. And I don't want to hear nothing about how this was a black man and it's a race thing. No, this is a anti poor thing. We hate poor people. We wish they would go away. We don't want to give them health care or mental health care. We want to pretend like capitalism is perfect and that the only reason they're not succeeding in the system is because they're just failures and everybody else is either struggling to succeed or outright succeed. They just want to kill those people. The truth is they want to eliminate people like that. Oh, that's Hunger Games all the way. If they could have it, they would have yeah. it. Yeah. Because there's no other explanation as to how you portray Jordan Neely as this terrible human being who deserved to die, unless you're pointing out the fact that he was homeless and that he was a career criminal or whatever the hell else you want to throw. Instead of saying he should be alive, what happened was a tragedy, and that's the end of the conversation. Right. Don't need to discuss anything else. No, people feel the need to justify it because in reality, they don't mind it. No. Um, and, and that's, that's really what it is. If this was somebody that those people thought was a valuable human being, they wouldn't be discussing it this way. And let me say one more. So it's just clear. Like this is just totally that. We have made it very clear, at least I have, regarding what I think of, you know, you know, sizable chunks of these suburban white women that are liberal. Well, let me assure you, those same suburban white women that are conservative, oh, they don't hide their prejudice and their bigotry, and their stupidity when it comes to things like that. They let it fly. They are, they're, they're very afraid. They're very afraid that everybody's going to attack. See, I didn't see, was there a video of all this that went down? Because I'm not no, going to watch that. Is, I don't want to see it. But... See, the video that all the progressives were playing were videos of him dancing as Michael Jackson, which again, he was doing a very good job. He could moonwalk. He could... <laughs> Sorry, had to do it. Uh, I mean, but that I, wasn't the actual video of what was transpiring that day. Now, eventually that video did. But here's the thing. And I and I get this because I actually have been in situations where you see somebody that it might appear that they're being very violent, being aggressive. Sure. They're they're not necessarily in their right mind. And you are somewhat threatened. Like, I do understand what that is. I actually have seen that, been around it, understand that. Absolutely. Um, and yet when I hear this story. There is nothing wherein I can't, I can't imagine thinking anything other than he clearly is in distress, 100%. clearly needed help, and clearly was not given that. Mm-hmm. Like, so, so I'm not saying that he wasn't threatening in the moment and that people didn't, but yeah. there's threatening and then there's 
threatening. Okay. Was he waving a gun around? Was he exactly directly and threatening the person? It sounded to me that he was just throwing trash and, and being belligerent. No, he was being belligerent and I'm sure he was being threatening. If he didn't have a knife or a gun and believe me, if he did, you would know about it by now. That's what I mean. Like, like, this is just, I, I don't know. I just think that, that we're just, we live in a very violent world and people's first response is, is to be violent. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. But the problem with the whole Lance of the Serfs versus Tim Pool debate, if you will, and all of the videos that everybody's been making, is the fact that no one actually made the proper argument here, which is Lance of the Serfs is definitely on the left, has very much a liberal progressive following, and Tim is definitely center right with a heavy libertarian following on his side. Now, the part of the conversation that no one is addressing is the fact that they had certain issues that they were talk talking about that they actually agreed on, including universal health care, which Tim made very clear, despite what people like to say, like the, you know, what you would call the hierarchy of the Democratic establishment media pundits saying that Tim Pool is this far right lunatic which he isn't, but you can have your opinion if you'd he, like. He's really not, um, but I do think he tends to project that way. And I think that's a lot more cool for him. For to, his show, yeah. uh, absolutely. But when you come out and say, I absolutely 100% support Medicare for all, that's big. And that's what should be talked about because Lance of the Serfs lives in Canada, A, and he has universal health care. And, and did Tim Pool specifically, like he said that, like yeah. flat out he supports Medicare for all. Yes. And he has said that many times. But that should have been one of the main takeaways of this conversation. The problem with the echo chamber world that we live in, which is within the media space. Yes, that's what we're saying. He does support Medicare The for independent all. media space. I guarantee you, when we put the clip out of this, we'll be the only one that addressed that particular point. Everybody else... Whether because people love their teams, man. Yeah. They just love their teams and they love to be angry and they I'm love to be at, fighting. I'm looking at you, Sam Cedar. I'm looking at you, Sean Fitzgerald, actual justice warrior. You guys are going to make your videos, but you're not going to point out the parts where they agreed on very important things. Because why? Because it's not lucrative for your channel to actually have agreement. What that leads to is people unsubscribing and leaving their patrons. They don't leave the, again for them. It's Is that about why we're money. not successful with the money because we get along and try to coalesce. Yeah, teams. And by the we way, don't have teams. I, I I just have to say, I really really love the internet. I love how you guys come up with this stuff. Um, I don't know where you're getting this from. Um, why would somebody? I think he's just making that up. No, I he he's well. Nobody said that we were at that wedding. First of all, I wouldn't go to that wedding. I have thoughts, but. I, I digress. Um, but yeah, no. No. I was invited to the wedding. And the reason I didn't go is because Jen wasn't invited. I wouldn't have gone anyway. You would have went with me. No, I Why not? <laughs> the last thing I want to do is go to Kyle and Crystal's wedding with Marianne well, officiating it. I can't keep a straight face. It was definitely a... The people that are criticizing it, I can totally understand why. And I can certainly understand there's. Um, you knew it. 
Well, what, that he was invited? I wasn't, I didn't go. I could have gone, but I didn't go. Wouldn't go to that. No. And yes, it did end up, I, well, thank you, Broy, but no, I'm, listen, it was my 40th birthday. I went out with a great group of friends on Saturday night. Instead of going to that wedding, we went to a pretty good place, I would say. And we did, but Apoth again, you, you say it like that. Apothecary? Apothecary. You say that like somehow it was a thing. I, yeah, first of all, I'm not friends with them. So I wouldn't be invited to a wedding with people I'm not friends with. Because um, why would I be? I wouldn't invite them if I were having a wedding. I wouldn't invite people I'm not friends with. So I'm not friends with them. Yeah, so why would well, I go to their wedding? That was the thing that, and listen, it's a long story. I'm not going to get into the details. But, you know, look, I'm, I, have a, I have a healthy respect for people that do this that are trying to push the right message. But for a lot of them, this is a career. This isn't a career for us. No. We're here to try to help. We're literally trying to help. Right. This is what they do. So they think about things strategically like, okay, a wedding, presidential candidate, then I get more subscribers, then we cross promote, then I get clicks, then we, we're not Listen, we're that. friendly with Gavin and Zach of the Vanguard, but we call them out for what they do. They're clickbaity. That's what they do. It, it's a different form of TMZ. A lot of these other shows, they do the same thing. And for them, it works. You thought you saw a picture? I, that would be really funny. It must be like my doppelganger. Any, I mean, listen, there was a lot of people that were there. Katie was there. Bree was there. The Vanguard boys were there. Jordan. No, Jordan. they didn't make an accident not inviting me. I'm saying this in all seriousness. I'm not friends with them. Like, like just because we share political viewpoints and are content creators doesn't mean we're friends. Yeah. It doesn't mean I've never met them other than we had Crystal on the show once. So the why would person, I be invited to their wedding? The one person that I, I am legitimately friends with because I know what real friends are and I value what that means, even though we Jordan. live in a world today. Jordan Chariton and He's he, a friend. And he and, and his wife and not were at the wedding. So good for them. And I hope, and you know what? They said they had a great time and I'm glad they did. And you know what? If Jordan had told me that he was going to be at the wedding, I might've thought, I might've had a second thought about it. But at the end of the day, I made a decision because it was my birthday and it would have been kind of weird being at somebody's wedding on my 40th birthday. I mean, I wouldn't have expected anybody to really yeah, make he, an issue about Kyle that. mentioned me on a show because I was a candidate running and he covers that news. He's covered lots of candidates. Yeah. It doesn't mean he invites them no, to his Kyle, wedding. No, you got to say, yeah, you see, this is the thing. We have a very warped sense, especially in the digital age that we're living in of what real friendships yeah, are. Yeah, I don't know them. I wouldn't go to their, like, I... I felt awkward because I do know Kyle and Crystal, but I don't know them well enough to feel like I belong at, at their, their wedding. wedding. Right. It's kind of like a big deal. At it least should it should be. be. Right, right. It's just kind of weird. So we're friends with them. I don't. And yeah, that was nice that he mentioned me when I was running. But the truth is, that's kind of what he does. Yeah. He I mean, talks about events and, and politics. So that's what he does. Look, we wish him well. Um, you know, we have opinions about that, but as long as they're continuing to push the message of non-corporate populist politics, and especially the emphasis on the much needed labor movement, you know, that's what we're fighting for here. And I hope each and every one of you that are out there that are watching, that are supporting, uh, you know, our efforts, our friends' efforts, the shows, and listen, there's... We're not gonna we're not gonna sit here and make a video about Kyle and Crystal's wedding and the fact that Marianne officiated. Who cares? I don't give a shit. But but the other thing is like 
Um, you know, I'm also just in general, people who know me know this. I don't like events like that. Like I'm not a wedding person. I don't, I don't like to go out and do so. I am not, he'll tell you, I'm not like somebody who wants to, and if at best, I'll go out and hang out with a small group of people. I don't like big events like I that. I think I did a pretty good job the other day. Yes, you did. But I'm just saying, I don't like big events like that. I don't like what I call forced white people dancing huh. and and those kinds of events. It's a good I don't thing like, one person didn't show up because otherwise the vibe is really I good. know. Well, and I, I got it. Hey, listen. Can we? I got to tell you, I got a dozen people together on my birthday in this. He's so proud of himself day. for doing it. But this. everybody was really chill yes, with each it was, other. Everybody was nice. But I just like, for me, I don't like big events. I don't like showers. I don't like forced Baby maudlin. Shower. I don't like forced maudlin bullshit. And to me, nothing screams forced maudlin bullshit more than a wedding. So I'm not a big fan of them. I don't like it in general. I actually didn't even have my own. I would have rather had the money. It was my husband who wanted a wedding. So like for me, I just, I, my dad picked out my dress. I don't do maudlin bullshit. I just don't. It's not my bag. Um, so I, I know it's very unromantic and it's very, but I if just it don't. Was, if it was Nina Turner's wedding. Well, if it was, well, when it's somebody that you're friends yeah. with, then you're there for them to be in that part of their life. But when it's just to go to an event, like as you're just a guest to go to a CNBC and who to event. No, I only go to things when it means something to me. And it would only mean something to me if I'm friends with the people. You know what I mean? I don't want to go to just somebody's wedding. I have no, I don't like my, my closest friend, daughter just graduated from college. They're having a party for her next week. That's like a, it's a combined party with some other family people, whatever. I'm not even going. She messaged me. We're going to get together privately. We want to get together with her and her daughter. Cause she knows she's like, you don't have to come because it's like, I just, yeah. Got to keep up appearances. I, but I, I don't. I, I don't keep up appearances. So I'm going to have to work some magic for Friday regarding uh, Steve Rumbine coming on, assuming that we will still have Nikki Freed coming on at four o'clock. Um, if we do all of this to no, to no avail, I'm going to be sad that we didn't just have our regular Wednesday night show and that I'm going to have to like well, you know, do a Friday well, afternoon. Well, we will make the adjustment as needed. Now i got to message Steve and make sure that everything's copacetic for Friday. Uh, knowing that we have to adjust the time by an hour. I never, no, no. That's my fault. Yes. Yeah. That's my fault. Yeah. Unless we work something out. I'm not, I don't want to go live at three. That's too early. It's too rushed. It's just not, it doesn't work for me. If you That's like. That's crazy. If uh, no one else adjusts their show times for us. I don't know anybody in the history well, since we've been doing Nikki. this. I mean, well, we are, but we're also doing it for Steve since he can come on. Oh, if we're doing it for Nikki, then we're live at four. Anything right. else, then I'm sorry, no, stop it. Well, it, th that was the time that she gave, and I didn't even put it out there. Imagine if the time was three o'clock. No, but I will. Let me tell you something. All right. I feel like I've been extremely kind of generous with the fact that we've had two missed appointments with her where she has been scheduled to come on at two different times and has to cancel two times. And I haven't really made a deal of it or whatever, but it's been because it's based on our time schedule. Fine. So now Nikki's agreed to come on on Friday. And we're doing it on her time where she's good for her. So if it doesn't happen, then I'm going to make a deal. Then I'm going to say, look, that's just not cool. Like, that's a problem. Fairly warned. Patreon.com forward slash generational change. For as little as $5 a month, you can become an amazing supporter of our channel. Of course, you know you get the Lulu sticker as an entry gift 
if you are so nice to do that. Shout out to new patron, $10 patron, Lisa Collins. Thank you, Lisa. You are an amazing supporter of our show. And Lisa does not want to receive any paraphernalia. She told us not to send her any paraphernalia. But your support is really, really appreciated. I I do appreciate it. If you are the $10 subscriber like Lisa, you can get yourself the Mansion Parliamentarian bumper sticker, the most likely president of the United States in 24. Mansion apparently is being floated as a candidate to run. I'm not kidding. Now that, you see now now that. However, will it be with the parliamentarian? We'll have to wait and see. If there is a Democrat, (laughs) even though it's Democrat in name only. And and let me say this. Let me say this. I don't know the Democratic, is the parliamentarian a Democrat necessarily? Or is it just a nonpartisan thing? I think it's supposed to be nonpartisan. That's hilarious. But here's what I would say about (laughs) the prospect of Manchin actually running for president. Um, He is facing a very, very difficult re-election campaign for the U.S. Senate in 2024. Yes, is. Is it conceivable that he just says the hell with it? My career, he's in his 70s now. He actually looks good for his age. I will give him that. He could potentially lose his seat. Yeah. Is it conceivable that he says, you know what, I might as well take a shot and run for president? Knowing a guy like him running in a state like a South Carolina adjacent being in West Virginia, being in the Rust Belt to Michigan. He would actually do okay. He might, you know what, especially if there's there's four candidates in the race. Well, no, he, what he should do is run as a Republican. Well, that he, well, that's a whole other story. Because that he would actually do pretty well. He might. He would. He's, he would be what would be considered like a moderate Republican. And and, and I think he would actually do really well because. Well, thanks, Broy. I really appreciate the thought. I mean, that would make a worse possible situation. Oh, my God. I don't think that anybody would choose her. Well, no. I think she's just too poisoned. Even at her big, even at her highest level. I, I always thought that she was poisoned, but this is beyond poison. This is like, get your ass Who out of would he pick? Life. He should pick Kirsten Cinema. He would pick somebody like he would pick. Somebody <laughs> that would be like hilarious. Cinema. That would be hilarious. That would be awesome. Yeah, c- come on, let's just make a complete mockery of everything. Do Mansion you know Cinema Twenty Four? Know, I am not kidding. I am. Not, and by the way, for those that are that could con- be a thing. considering being extremely generous, twenty five dollar a month patrons get the wonderful tri blend generational change jersey. You know you want one, silky smooth. Awesome. It says, awesome. "Here comes the sun." They're really cute. They really are. I am not kidding. Who Florida politics are floating as potential challengers to Rick Scott? Oh, you guys have to hear some of this. Wayne Wade, who already moved out of the state. Although, you know what? Uh, Here's the thing, though. This is the problem with that particular race. I am not exaggerating. I'd vote for anybody. 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 I literally I'm not exaggerating. I would vote for anybody over him. So that's the problem. So when you say Dwayne Wade, I, I'm like, oh, because I don't think he's a psychopath. So right there, no, well, that's what I'm saying. we have a low bar we're yeah, dealing and with. And then of with course, Rick Scott. and then you also have Grant Hill. So what is it with former NBA players that happen to be Florida They're residents? Tall. It's intimidating. Well, Dwayne Wade is I not- can tell you what my thing is with Dwayne Wade. Dwayne Wade's a handsome fellow. Okay. Beyond. But besides that, it's his lips. Dwayne Wade has like, oh my God, the most like He's just delicious. Luscious. He does. I love his lips. I've always he's not loved that, him. It's not, just, and he's not that tall for a basketball player. I don't he's know. Only he's six, no, he's perfect. Six, he's six four. So he's an appropriate height. He's, he's just not delicious. an he's not an offensive height. Grant Hill is about six seven, six eight. Now you're entering the territory of like, whoa. I don't know that I would even know him by looking at Grant him. Grant Hill was a great. Um, okay, but now Handsome, we're out of that. Handsome, suave. I don't need like Gabrielle right. coming after me or anything. But I'm just saying, there's something about. D-Wade. 
Yeah, she's very, very protective of her husband. As well she should be. So it's lips. It's delicious. It is what it is, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, we'll see what happens. I don't think that's going to happen. But in this day and age, who Mansion the hell could be surprised cinema. by anything? Mansion cinema. The least of us. That's uh, so funny. Well, look, she doesn't care about getting reelected to her seat. If anything changes significantly between now and Wednesday, you'll know. But otherwise, the Gen Z report at 9 o'clock on Thursday. They're going to be talking about, um, actually, they're going to be talking about the monarchy and what's going on in the UK with monarchy and coronation and all that. But mm. these kids are really, uh, they have really good conversation. And then guys, don't forget next Monday, John Perkins, Confessions of the, an Economic Hitman. We'll be talking about that. It's some serious, it'll be a great conversation. It is some seriously depressing shit. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's a whistleblower for that industry, just like Wendell Potter is for healthcare. Like this is, I mean, the secrets and the stuff that he's put out about the stuff that they did in foreign countries with dictators and like taking over shit and buying them out like crazy shit. Yeah. And then of course, on Friday, we are going to be knock on wood speaking with Nikki Freed and hopefully speaking with Steve Grumbine as well. We appreciate you guys smash that like button, subscribe, comment share, do all those wonderful things. We'll see you at the end of the week. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews, as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.